Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Going in Circles Big Monday Show. Tonight, we have a special guest. The great Sid Fernando will be joining us. Sid, if you don't know him, well, where have you been? But uh, he's a regular on Steve Bick's show. He also is a thoroughbred breeding expert. He's an excellent rider. He is uh, kind of a racing historian. And uh, an all-around cool guy. Anyways, we're going to pepper him with questions tonight uh, of all sorts. But it should be a fun show. And uh, one thing about Sid is, is, like Barry and I, he is uh, pretty direct. <laughs> Not a lot of beating around the bush. So uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, we'll be back here in uh, just a minute. Sid. Hey, Chuck. Barry. Hey. The gang is all here. Is that what we are now, a gang? That's what, we're the gang, man. All right, I'm down with that. What's up, fellas? Sid, very, very nice to have you on. Obviously, uh, you're one of our guys, and uh, we want you to, to... To bring some knowledge tonight, man. Bring some knowledge to the people. Well, first off, I got to say I'm honored to be here with you, Chuck, and my man's Barry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, man, that's that's fantastic. I'm so glad you were able to come on. Yes, I, I understand it's a difficult time for you guys down in Florida with the, the temperatures, you know. <laughs> like sub 70 so i i, I realize that you know, you're gonna have to like fight through it but uh we do appreciate you coming on and uh and and kicking some topics around with us well i gotta tell you um i told my wife cynthia i was coming on today uh you know she and i listen to a lot of podcasts at night um and one day i told her about your podcast and and we started listening to it. So I feel like I'm, you know, a real celebrity right now coming on here. Oh, man. <laughs> I think it's the other way around, my man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, we, we don't have uh, industry organizations threatening to uh, string us up yet. <laughs> pretty, they just ignore us. <laughs> uh, well, you will soon. You will soon. <laughs> You'll join the club. Hey, that's what that's what we're hoping for. But uh, no, honestly, it, it's it's awesome to have you. And um, you know, there's uh, we talk, uh, you know, full disclosure, Barry, I and Sid, you know, we 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 talk a lot uh, via text about all sorts of different subjects. But um, you know, we wanted to have Sid on for a while, and uh, this this seems like a good time to have it. Uh, kind of leading up to breeding season, Sid. For the people that don't know you know you or don't listen to steve bick uh, i don't know why i mean i don't know what's wrong <laughs> with those people but uh just give a, a quick little description of of your uh you know your, your spot in racing and and um you know like where you where you became uh you know like how you started well that's a, that's a long story chuck but i'll tell you where i am um as you know I run a company called Work Thoroughbred Consultants. Uh, it's a nine-person company, and we, you know, advise uh, clients on breeding horses and 
you know, buying horses at auction. At the same time, I have, I have like a second career, and this will tie kind of into it. I'm also a columnist and writer for the TDN. And um, that comes from, you know, years of being a writer and a columnist with a lot of papers, including the Racing Times, the um, Daily Racing Forum, of course. And, you know, throughout my, um, I started writing in, you know, I graduated from college in 82 and I started writing, I got my first article published in 83 and, um, you know, I've been writing since then, but even before that, I was a big fan of racing in the seventies as a teenager. And I got, um, you know, one day, you know, I used to read the daily racing forum all the time. And I'd read the Bloodlines column of Leon Rasmussen. And, you know, when I was 16, I just, there was a topic he was writing about. I sent him a, a letter because back then we didn't have email. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I just sent him a letter and I kind of just expected nothing would happen. But he responded right away. And, it, and he had this, he had a typewriter, uh, guys, and it had it, it typed in all cap letters it was very <laughs> distinctive and he sent me a letter back he he didn't know how old i was and um you know we started um back then it was called you know letter writing and we just sent letters back and forth to each other um and um you know at the time he was talking about a lot of breeding theories and you know, he'd include me in him, and we got to be really good friends. And he never knew how old I was until, like, years later when I met him, you know, and he was a lot older than I was, obviously. Um, but he, you know, he and I just became really great friends. And, um, you know, so um, that was really one of my first um, parts of really getting involved in the business, Um but, you know, I've done a lot of stuff through the years. And uh, my friend Jack Work used to run. He founded uh, Work to Urban Consultants. And um, it was, I think, after I left the Daily Racing Forum in 98, I had my two sons. And, and, and I wanted to spend time with them. So, I, you know, I started, I was writing. And I was also working for Jack as, you know, like a private consultant with a lot of his clients. And um, about 12 years, let's see, 98, uh, no, quite a, quite a few years later, uh, like in 2010, Jack got cancer and he, 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 he wanted me to take over the company. <coughs> so, um, at this time, my kids were, you know, teenagers. And so, I, 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 you know, I went ahead and decided to do that. And so since 2010, I've been running Work Therapy Consultants. Uh, the company, of course, was around a lot longer than that. And, um, you know, uh, Jack was like one of my best friends. And so it was only, you know, it was something I, I really wanted to do. And... Um, you know, since then, that's that's basically what I've been doing since then, plus the writing. But I got I got to add this 
part to it because <laughs> we had the Twitter stuff come up, right? During this period, like 2009, 2008, I was like, I was on Twitter and, um, you know, we're going through the stuff. And then my wife, Cynthia, got, get, got on. And one day, you know, we're in bed <laughs> looking at Twitter and she's always giggling, laughing every, 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 every night. And, you know, after, after, after a couple of weeks, I was like, what the heck are you laughing at? And she said, oh, you got to follow this guy. And I said, who? He said, he's the funniest guy on Twitter. And I said, well, what's his name? He said, his name is Barry the Sniper Spears. And I said, bro, that's my man's. <laughs> that's my man's. You know? And, and so that was such a funny, you know, that was a funny uh, link between us all. And uh, I guess Barry had been following me and then he started following Cynthia and then she followed him and so she, I, I don't know how it happened but you know they, they were able to she was able but every night Barry bro <laughs> you had her in stitches every night and then of course uh, as far as Chuck is concerned of course I followed Chuck you know while he was training the whole time and I'll tell you what um, one of the biggest surprises to me was when well of course Chuck and I met you know at Tampa and all that we really had a good time but one of the biggest surprises to me about Chuck and everybody listening out there I mean, this is very very serious and it's coming from me Chuck started writing and I was like the fuck <laughs> <laughs> This motherfucker is better than anybody out there writing, you know, and it's a real talent he's got. And, you know, you started doing the podcast and you got a you got the voice for it, too. But the writing and the and the and the and, and the voice and this applies to you, too, Barry, what really attracted me about this podcast was how intelligent you guys were, how low key you put this thing together and just every week started um, talking about issues. And there were important issues that other people weren't talking about. None of the BS around it. And, you know, uh, I thought it was like really fantastic. And so, you know, I'm a listener to that. I'm, I read your blog. Of course, remember, uh, Chuck, I also wrote one of your first blog posts as a guest writer. One of your first guest That's writers. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mr. Doom. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Doom was in that one. Exactly. And actually that blog post is what inspired me to do a, a year ago, a limited edition blog uh, of racing through the lens of MF Doom. And Barry was was the uh, the guy that the sole guy in charge of putting that those blog posts on, out on Twitter because I'd left at that point. So, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, links and, uh, and you know, we're, it, we've been interconnected for a while, so I'm just happy to be here now. Well, we are happy to have you, and uh, I started, I remember your name in the racing form. Uh, I read 
Leon Rasmussen stuff. Uh, what did he write in the Thurbert Times too? Was he? Yeah, in, he wrote. Yes, he, yeah. he wrote in the, uh, the Thurbert Record. The Thurbert Record. Thurbert Record. Times. Yeah, Thurbert Record. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He so, wrote a, yeah. You know, that, that was you know before the internet. Exactly. <laughs> the and you know, for someone that was trying to learn about breeding, it was not that easy because it isn't like things are accessible as they are now. And like we used to have, I was teasing my friend the other day, we we're talking about how we used to have to look up horses, siblings, you know, that are in races uh, using the, uh, the American produce records. You know, you had to leaf through these ones, <laughs> one by one now, like the information's everywhere. I mean, everyone has it. And, um, but I used to read, you know, Mr. Rasmussen and, and I started reading you, um, when you kind of took over that that spot, I think at the racing form, right, right, and you know your your stuff was always, um, it was interesting to me, but it was informative and it was written in a way that it didn't want to make you fall asleep. Like some of the breeding stuff, it just gets like too immediate technical. Exactly. And, you exactly. know, next thing you were talking about horses from you know that there were bred in nineteen oh three and you know it just is like that's that's just too far back for me. I, I can't I can't do that. But um, yeah. but no your your name had been uh been one that I had recognized and when you started writing for <clears throat> the horseman um magazine. Yeah. And I thought yeah. and uh what was the guy the English guy Giles. Yeah Giles and that was trainer magazine. Yeah trainer and magazine. the editor was Francis J. Karen, mm -hmm. uh, who's you know a, a real close friend of mine, but and and one of the most knowledgeable people I know, and she now works for Work Thurber Consultants. Well, she's she's good, and uh, she takes good pictures too. Yeah, yeah. oh, she's yeah. A um, great, great. On Twitter, I like her Twitter account. It's it's a good follow for those that uh, don't follow her. You probably should. I actually, yeah. she she said something today on Twitter about a picture of Colonel John on the Korean stud uh, website, and I, I hadn't yet looked it up to see what was so <laughs> unusual about it. But uh, that, yeah. that's that's on my list of things to do at some point to to check out uh, because she said she was uh, I can't remember the exact word, but something like horrified. So yeah, I think yeah. the picture the picture may not be so so great, yeah. but. Um, yeah, I gotta take. I gotta check that out too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's really good. And um, uh, yeah, I, I used to write for that magazine, North American Trainer. And uh, then you know, uh, Sue Finley wanted me to. I was also writing for the Therapy Times, and then uh, Sue Finley. Of course, they went bankrupt. You know, uh, bro, they owed me like four grand when they went bankrupt. <laughs> I never got paid for it. Ed, De, Ed DeRosa was there at the time, too. I blame Ed. Yeah. His fault. Yeah. He, he, he did put up a, a tweet today that uh, <clears throat> the old Thoroughbred Times building is now housing the Kentucky Department of Corrections. Oh, boy. So there's oh, there's <laughs> um, definitely some, some synergies there. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a bad. Uh, I, I heard from quite a few people. Uh, Pete Dank. Um, uh, was was writing there a couple of guys that uh yeah. just was got, there yeah just got stiffed <laughs> the guy just he just banged everybody it was uh you know it was, it was kind of a typical racing thing to be honest with you i mean it sucks but uh that that's racing and 
I mean, racing is a is a business where literally um, everyone owes money to somebody. And, yeah, uh, it's 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 crazy, but uh, it's it's just um, believe me. I've, I've see those are the kind of lines that are priceless. Nobody else says them, but racing. Yeah. Quote, quote, racing is a business where everybody owes everyone else money. End quote. Chuck Simon. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> it, it's it's. You you won't get many people within the industry and in any facet to disagree with that. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> uh, I mean, oh. it's so funny because sometimes we're we're insulated in, in, in thoroughbred racing, and then we think, well, you know, this stuff doesn't happen in other businesses, and it happens in other businesses. But this business is different because you have that, um, you have you have that whole subset of billionaires. Yeah, that, are, that exist in here that, that you have access to that you can stand next to at a sale or you, you might be in the next box at a race or, you know, that if you own um, if, if you do something else, you're probably not getting involved with those type of people. And that, that's why racing is so cool, because, you know, you can have a, a race at Saratoga and, and a guy who's might be the leader of a country uh, be standing next to a kid that snuck across the border, you know, six months earlier and, and they're watching the same TV, hoping for the same outcome. And, and that's just uh, the one thing that, you know, makes racing kind of a cool thing. But, uh, but uh, it, it is, uh, you know, a lot of people owe money. Yeah, so, no doubt. No doubt. And, and, and it's just a tough, it's a tough racket. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of areas uh, and, and Sid, you can certainly verify for people that think that like everyone is getting rich at the sales and everyone's getting rich breeding horses, that that just isn't the case, uh, you know, because people see these huge prices, but they don't see everything else. Yeah, that's not the case. And, you know, a great example, it's, it's been in the news lately, um, to your point about people owing money. There's this guy through his agent, Richard Knight, who's buying all these expensive horses at all all the yearling sales this year. Keeneland, Tattersall's mm-hmm. Lofts. He racked up twenty million he purchased twenty million dollars worth of horses, bro, and he didn't pay for a single one. Huh. Talk about, you know, yeah. Owing money. Yeah, I, I saw where some people were blaming the agent like <laughs> like, do I really think that that he he wanted to be in that situation? And and the odds are he didn't get paid either. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, the odds are very good he didn't get paid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If people get stiffed in this business, you know, a lot. you know that as a trainer, I got stiffed a lot. Yeah, I, I wound up being behind on bills. Uh, at the end of my career, I was behind on bills all the time because no one paid, and 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 the guys that did pay were the small guys, the guys yeah. that actually worked for a living and, and understood the value of, of the dollar and how important it was. And, and it's not everybody, of course, but yeah. it, it's just, it gets difficult because you're, you know, you're trying to figure out how to, to, to navigate. Um, it, it's one of the big, and Barry and I have talked about this ad nauseum on this show. It's one of the huge issues that exists for racing survival in that if the middle-class trainers can't survive, because the big trainers uh, have taken all the good owners mm-hmm. and they've taken, you know, the B string horses that they didn't. When I first started training in 1999, 
the, my yeah. first couple of years, I got a lot of B-string horses. I trained some for Rick Patino. I trained for Arthur Hancock. I trained for a lot of guys that had horses that they didn't want to necessarily just give up on, but they also didn't want to pay the top day rate. Right. And, you know, we did pretty well with those. And, and, and what happened was the big outfits stopped, uh, you know, they, they started taking those horses too. And, and that's something that people don't get is that uh, uh, on Arthur Hancock, um, he's going to pay his bills. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to get paid from him. Yeah. And he's going to take care of business. He always did. He was never a problem. I, a matter of fact, I, I you know, we, I don't agree with him on a lot of industry topics, but as far as business, it was first class, first yeah. class operation. The buying That's... horses from them, it's first class. It's it's the way it's done. But when when those kind of guys, when when the middle class trainers lose access to those people, it's not just the good horses. It's the it's the decent horses. It's the horses that, hey, you, you try to break a maiden and maybe win an allowance race. And, you know, hell, who knows? Maybe the horses develop a little bit, late bloomer, find an easy stake somewhere. Right. And, and and you know you're going to get paid and you know you're going to get paid your commissions. And and, and those people are solid uh, people to have as your base business. And when you lose those people and, and everyone – gets you know we we know the 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 owners that skip around and they have this trainer and the next trainer and the next trainer and the next trainer and the next trainer there's a good chance that person is also a person that isn't paying his bills good point um and it's you know and you and barry do talk about this a lot and it's another topic people don't talk about you know and it's very very true it's a difficult topic to talk about for trainers. If yeah. you're an active trainer in that you, A, you don't want to, nobody wants anybody else to know, <laughs> even though we all kind of do. <laughs> I remember, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this story. Um, uh, I was stable next to Ken McPeak and, and Ken and I were never friend friends, but we were, you know, cordial, and actually we shared, we, we had the same accountant, because I knew one thing about Kenny, he's a good business guy. He's a good business person. He's organized and, and you know, takes care of business. I asked him when I started training, hey, who who handles your books? Who does your accounting? And he gave me a guy, and, uh, you know, we had the same guy. Um, so a couple years later, and we were actually stable next to each other at Churchill Downs. And then he went on his little hiatus, and then he came back, and um, next thing I know, he's, he's training for Ramsey and I had been, of course, training for Ramsey when I started. And, uh, I told him, I said, Kenny, you might want to ask, uh, <laughs> you might want to ask, uh, Dom was, was the count's name, Dom about, right. About, uh, Ramsey, because, uh, you know, you're always bragging about everyone pays you, but it's going to be difficult because it's been difficult for literally everyone. Yeah, no, 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 no. He'll, he'll pay. And then, you know, like six months later, he got horses. Then, of course, Ramsey fired him and moved the horse somewhere else. And, you know, he came and he you know, geez, he didn't. How, how, how do you get paid by this guy? Yeah. Hold yeah. the papers. And when the stewards call you, say, I don't know. Maybe I have them. Maybe I don't. Because technically, you're not allowed to hold the papers. But they can't race without them. So, you know, you can at least uh, delay it for a little bit. And, you know, I, all the old timers tell you that uh, the way it was of course it's a new world but Mm -hmm. um the way it was was that 
if you had a, uh, someone who wasn't paying the bills, that you could go to the stewards and the stewards would, would, would take care of it. And that changed. Yeah. So somewhere in the 90s to the two that when I started training, where the rules, and there are rules on the books about financial responsibility, but they just don't want to enforce them. And a lot of it is because uh, the racing commissions don't want to wind up in court. They don't want to spend money. Uh, especially for something that they don't consider um, their issue. You know, to work it out between yourselves. We're not bill collectors. Which is unfortunate because I think a lot of people, they would just need a little bit of prodding. But um, it's a difficult, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to, you don't have to be be a genius to figure out. It's a difficult way to make a uh, make a living in that, if you don't have really good horses and you're not winning all the time and you, and you don't have uh, blood stock that, that, you know, you're not selling horses or buying horses to just to grind it out as a trainer is kind of like the equivalent of grinding it out as a better. Yeah. For, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you think you, I, I can go to the races every day and make 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> so how do, how do we rectify that problem as an industry i mean i know you know we've talked about things like limiting stall spaces and things like that but is there really a tangible way that the industry can kind of you know kind of reinvigorate the the middle class hmm. well the way it's going right now it's tough. I mean, speaking of who you just spoke about, I mean, that's exactly what Wesley Ward did, didn't he? Holding the papers for that same owner. And he's in <laughs> all sorts of litigation right now. Uh, I think, Barry, um, what Chuck said, it, it's too bad that the commissions don't flex more in that regard, you know? And um, I think you need somebody to do it. Otherwise it's a wild West situation. You know, you, you, you know, the, un, another thing that's really unsaid um, is that a lot of trainers are training for half these days, meaning that they are taking horses and they're not charging the owners to train them. And they're splitting the revenue from the horse. Um, and those are terrible. Those are terrible deals. I mean, yeah, if you think about how many horses, even with enhanced purses from slots, because, I mean, let's face it, slot money has, has increased the, the daily average purse a considerable amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there, there is a, a pot of gold for some horses uh, that, that might win a couple races. And all of a sudden, you know, hey, that, that horse paid for a bunch of them. But if you consider how few horses actually are are profitable because it isn't as though the trainer doing this in most occasions, unless it's the person with, you know, one or two horses that takes care of them themselves, that gallops in themselves, you're going to have expenses. Obviously the horse is going to have to eat. He's going to have to have bedding. He's going to have to have shoes. He's going to have to have someone gallop them and, 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 and work them. And um, you're going to have to do all the, the, the regular care, the dental work, the, um, the physical therapy, any vet work. So it's still going to cost somebody <laughs> a, a 
considerable amount of money to train that horse every month. And if it's on the trainer's tab, then they're just getting themselves in further and further and further. And absolutely. I, I had a guy one time, he called me up and he was a reputable owner and he had horses with uh, Bill Ma. And uh, he, I think he had some on the West coast. He had like 10 horses and he, and he told me how great I was. And he, he, he which is always a, the, the the scary thing is when a guy calls you up and tells you how good you are. Usually, <laughs> not getting... yeah, usually the, the the other shoe is going to drop, and it did. And he said, "I have these two horses, and you know, I, I couldn't. Uh, I think he had, they they gone through a two year old sale, and I had looked at both of them, and and honestly, I don't even think I bid on either of them because I I didn't honestly buy that many two year olds, but that's a whole other story. But anyways, he he called me up and he's like, "Hey, you know, you're a good trainer and you do really well, and blah blah blah." And, I got these two horses and they, okay, send, send them in. He goes, well, what about the day rate? I said, well, the day rate is, uh, you know, whatever it was, 82 a day or something. And he's like, well, you know, I got a lot of horses and blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, so you want me to take the horses on a deal? Yeah, yeah, it would really be great for me. I said, okay, how about this? And and Mott had a horse who's like a low-level stake horse. And I said, all right, you send me that one and the other two. I'll 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 do all three of them. Well, I can't take that horse from Bill. I said, but you can pay Bill 110 a day to train, but you want <laughs> me to train for free. I go, you must really think I'm good. <laughs> because Bill requires 110 a day to, to train a horse, and, and, and I could do it for free. I mean, how much better do you think I am? I mean, you must think I'm like, you know, the Michael Jordan of, of trainers because I, you know, I mean, I just, how, how good could I be to, to be able to, you know, and, and he kind of like, you know, didn't say anything. And I was like, you know, no offense, but you I mean, you're asking me to work for nothing. I mean, I looked at your horses at the, the, the sale and I didn't buy them and no one else bid on them for a reason. That doesn't mean they can't be okay. But I go, you, you know, by the time they get time off, come back, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I, I might be $50,000 into these horses before they even start. I go, like, it's just a terrible deal. And I, I won't cut corners, but. The next guy, because obviously I'm not taking horses, but the next guy you find up uh, sending a horse to, he he's going to cut corners probably because, you know, unless he's independently wealthy. And if he's independently wealthy, then why is he taking horses for free in the first place? Yep. So, yeah, yeah, that's you know. that's a dilemma. That's a dilemma. Yeah, yeah, it, and there's there's a lot more of those horses than people would even believe, and. It used to be more of a smaller track thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know trainers at some of the B-level tracks, they, the jocks come and get on the horses. And I, I have one friend, he trains, he's always riding jockeys that are like two for 64. <laughs> and it's like, man, if you put the decent jock, I can't. Why? Well, he comes on and gets on them every day. Yeah, so He's saving me $15, $20 a day. And he gets on these three horses. So... So they wind up, you know, having to ride these guys who are, you know, not very good because they come and gallop them for free because they have the horse on a deal. And it's just a, um, it's just a, a, a shitty cycle. Really is. And once again, you brought out, you really illustrated really well something that exists right now. It's huge. I mean, you, yeah. I mean, even the betters can, can feel it. Um, when you see the entries come out and you see 
one trainer has three horses in a in a six horse race things like that and and it's it's affecting the whole product yeah you know for me to understand that you know it's it's got to be far you know what i mean because i came into this game as just a better when i was a kid you know and i'm i'm expanding my horizons you know especially having you two as friends and 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 picking your brands whenever i can and listening to you guys talk and stuff like that um that i can feel that you know you know there's a, a huge ripple effect that the super trainers have absolutely i mean chuck's the best example of it right you know a guy like chuck had to leave the business yeah i i chose to leave more than i had to leave but you yeah know. you chose to but you know like you said it was a grind i i got tired of beating my head against the wall and exactly yeah, and that's the thing is that uh i mean I, I go back in my career and i say where did i make an error and i made a huge error in that I never desired to have a hundred horses. That was never my thing. I never wanted to have five divisions. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that 30 to 40 would be perfect. Unfortunately, um, because, you know, when I was growing up, Woody Stevens, Alan Jerkins, that, that's what those guys had. Exactly. That was the model back then. Right. And, and I, it was I, D. Wayne Lucas, who was the super trainer, but he was a yeah. one off. But, right, he was the only guy, and right. the, you try to tell that to people now. It's like, hey, man, in the eighties, there was only one guy, Lucas. He was the only guy that was coast to coast and off the plane, Dwayne. Right. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you know, Vanberg had a big, huge operation in the Midwest, but it was all claiming races. He was at Axar yeah. Ben and yeah. you know Louisiana Downs, and every and, track you know, or region had like a local, you know, claiming guy, you know, Bairds. In West Virginia, Vanberg, you know, um, Hondo Ranch in in the Midwest. But on the big scale, it was D. Wayne. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I, I just thought that Lucas and Eugene Klein basically had all the good horses. And they had a lot of them. And they had a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, looking back, it's like, wow, they really had a lot of good horses. But, it, you know, it was just there wasn't a stakes race that was really run without those two being together in it. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't, you know, back then I didn't really understand what was going on as much as I do now. Um, <clears throat> but now that concept has spread to, you know, more people. And then, you know, the haves and the have nots that that gap has become way bigger. Yeah, it really has. You know, the, you know. Barry, a funny thing about with these super trainers is that when you look at a guy like Baffert, he really doesn't have a, a sprawling operation like Asmussen or Todd or even now Brad Cox, but he's got all high-level draft picks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? he, he's the guy with all the lottery picks. Every yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, when you look at Baffert's barn, he has a type of horse, and that's really all he has. He has young uh, colts that are classically bred to go long, and and you know has some fillies along the same line. But he he almost doesn't train turf horses. He doesn't train turf. No, yeah. if he has a claimer, there there he doesn't have long. Yeah, it's um, gone. Yeah. yeah, so he doesn't even really run that many in maiden claiming races. Very so, few, and yeah. they're going to be out of there pretty soon. 
Right. It, yeah. It's uh, it's unlike some of the other super trainers who have um, you know, all horses of all you know all manners, uh, which always kind of baffled me in um, thinking that you're going to pay a super trainer rate to. Uh, have a horse that's ready for like maiden 20 yeah I know. it, it just seems bizarre like yeah. well, why would you do that yeah um do you think the trainer's gonna get mad at you so he's not gonna train your grade one horse properly because you took a maiden 20 it's it's weird but uh but you know they they you know it's it's just a, a sign of the times i suppose yeah and even the private trainers um chuck you know, just used to have a lot of East Coast private trainers. Yeah, I mean, they're not around. I mean, look at Shug's now got plenty of different other clients. You know, yeah, Shug hardly has any horses uh, from the Phipps anymore. They they've cut down considerably. Yeah, I mean, they they may have a handful of horses for the Phipps's, and some of those horses are horses the Phipps's own in partnership with other people. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I remember when I was a kid. Uh, the, the Mac Miller, you know, training for Rokeby, they'd come out in the, the yellow jackets and yep. they'd go to the paddock and they had those, um, those gray kind of smock things. And, yep. um, yeah, I mean, we're just talking the other day about Mrs. Payson dying. And, uh, I remember when, when she had a, a big operation, you know, she had all her horses with one person and one in one location. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, Darby Dan had Lou Rondinello. We used to call him 52 Lou because he never worked <laughs> a horse faster than 52 for a half. You know, Mac Miller for Paul Mellon and Rokeby. Uh, you know, um, you had you had uh, back then too, like, you know, riders and first calls for uh, certain stables. Green Tree had Gus Castinez, remember? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at, that was a problem because Gus was the, the, the regular rider for four go, but he had to get off four go when like stopped the music and hatchet man ran against four go. And finally, you know, uh, Frank Whiteley and then later, uh, well, Cheryl Ward and then Frank Whiteley got tired of that, you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all these big outfits, I mean, they were, they had their own barns there, you know, the, the whole crew. And it was, Oh, entirely different game than it is right now. Now you got Brad Cox this year. I mean, he's five deep in every three-year-old colt race at every track in the Midwest. Yeah, I saw a listing of the top buyer figures for three-year-olds around two turns, or maybe they're just three-year-old stake horses or whoever. And uh, Of the top 15, I think he and Baffert had like 10 or 11 yeah and that's not you know that's and and they have some that are underneath that didn't make the top 15 and and they have of course uh, i'm sure an arsenal full yet and and it's uh you know listen it's the the way the game has changed and it's not a positive in for the future of the business and that that's that's the scary thing that never seems to affect any of the decision makers of the sport and that they've let things go so much because the game always survived, but um, it just makes it very difficult uh, from a, an outsider's point of view 
to look at it and and wonder and i mean you know we we've talked about this in another shows about a coupled entries uh, hmm. things like that and 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 you know when the other baffert wins when he's got two in a race and uh the longer price wins which happened in the uh chance yeah the, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, 35 you know, the longest shot on the board of the guy had four entered he ran three and and the, and the long shot won and we yeah. all know that it wasn't like he set that up but this is a business that because um of every single movie that was ever made has has always portrayed racing as kind of a shady deal you know and and people just they have these misconceptions, but we, we feed into those a lot of times by just kind of letting everything go. Well, yeah, the premise of, of let it ride. And really the whole premise of the movie was inside information. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Garnered in a different, you know, way from the taxi cab. <laughs> uh, that was still one of the greatest movies. Yeah. I, I laugh just as hard every time. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I I know every person in that movie, in some way, you know, from from just going to the track over the years, just one of each. Sid, when was the last time you you were at Hialeah? <sighs> Man, the last time I was at Hialeah had to be in the eighties. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's when they used to remember they had the the annual dates fight. Yeah, who would get the prime dates and exactly. Uh, it was the, the the state got so frustrated they just said just run whenever you want. Yeah, <laughs> which just you just jogged my memory about something, Chuck. I mean, Jesus, how about the flamingo? We used to always look forward to yeah. the flamingo. Oh man, right? yeah, I remember when Devil's Bag got beaten. The flamingo, I, I I was I was in shock. My my. 17 year old self or however 15 year old self however old yeah. i was i i couldn't believe he lost it was like you know what <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's wild that is wild i mean really um all of us have been around for a while because barry used to go to rock oh yeah <laughs> that was my I did too you know uh, i mean it's amazing how many tracks are on the you know no longer around. You know what's so funny about the Rockingham? You know, it, it's it's a, it's an odd remembrance, but I, it was the first time I ever saw races where they ran at an about distance and there was no fractions. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know why that sticks with me, but it used to freak me out because I'm like, well, what's an about distance? What does it yeah. mean? They just start wherever they want, or you know? And again, back then things weren't nearly explained as well. You, you know, you'd ask a guy at the track and. Sometimes they give you the right answer, and sometimes they told you something that's complete nonsense. But, um, you know, we didn't have an internet to, to go on. Yeah, there was no computer. internet. There was no social media. It's really amazing about the people that, you know, have come in now, and, and that's what they're used to. But think about it, right? It's just, it goes back to what you were talking about, with, you know, trying to get information, too. I mean, even in the breeding industry back then, we had to wait for the blood horse to come every week just to get the results. You yeah. Know, overseas. Right. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something we talked about a couple. Well, I guess like six months ago, talking about um, disqualifications. And oh then yeah. I said, you know, <laughs> when we were growing up, when we were young, yeah, we didn't see 
nine different tracks run. No way. Yeah, I, I heard that. Uh, I heard that episode of you guys, and I was like nodding. Exactly. Right on the mark. We, we, we saw nine races at our track, and, and the video yeah. wasn't exactly, you know, perfect. And the, the guys did ride straighter then. But um, <laughs> it, it uh, you know, that's one of the things that makes it more difficult. And, and it's one of the big failings of Heisa is to, to us, and this has been our take, is that you know, why wasn't uh, on-track, um, you know, the adjudicating the on-track incidents part of that because that is the one thing that should be apparent that is needed across the board since everyone is betting races and watching races from all over the country and sometimes we're, we're dealing with uh, places that have different rules and the same thing isn't being treated uh, the same and as such it just leads to confusion which which leads to contempt and then that's you know that should be a priority for them, and it should have. Yeah, and I, I don't think that they've they have any interest in it. Well, look at how many times a day you see on Twitter somebody posting like a replay of of a race that you know they thought you know the horse was fouled or you know there was a bad call by the stewards and and so on. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it just think about that in like you know even in nineteen ninety. Barry, what's what's the guy? Uh, Jack pulled the the uh, uh, jackpot. Kim, <laughs> that one. He that gets, account. He he goes. He gets right to the heart of the issue with the video. all day long. <laughs> but you know, I used to beg my mom every August. You know, because back then, uh, the Saratoga meet was just in August. It didn't start in July. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And beggar every day, you know, to go to the races by the sixth race so I could see the one simulcast race they had from Naira. And I was like, yeah, I wanted to see the races from New York. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sid, did uh, you ever made it to Atlantic City? Oh, yeah. Love that track. I saw there was a video this morning put up. Um... With oh, yeah. four stars, all star, lure, and uh, I watched that several times because I remember that race. Yeah, and I was... saw your I saw your quote about it, where you said, "Try to find three horses, turf horses, as good as these three nowadays." I, th- I think uh, my official quote was uh, that they beat our current top horses by two hundred lengths. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration. Funny, no. some guy was like, "Hey, you know, bricks and mortar." I was like, "You kidding me?" yeah it's it's so tough and you know one of the things that i I was on big show last week and um and i wrote about this last week too is that i thought that the hall of fame would would do itself a really big favor by by having sid involved on on their their committee because uh you know the one thing you're able to do to us you do in private all the time is um you you take the past and, and and you blend it into the 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 few you know the current yeah. what we see now and and try to you know differentiate the difference and why it's different and how things change not just all oh, the horses were always way better back then or yeah exactly just, you know and, and i think that that's something that that's a lot um it's missing because you don't see a lot of the people that have that background that, that saw the horses of the 70s that just didn't see. like for the most part i i didn't I didn't see very many of the horses of the seventies 
live and in person maybe when I was you know I was young young at right. Saratoga and basically when I was at Saratoga when I was young I was a stupor I used to look for tickets <laughs> on the ground and bring them home and <laughs> find winners so um but um you know you're you're able to to take that era and then the the era the foul the 80s and then the 90s which was different from the 80s and then you know kind of um you know give us a, a really good understanding of of why things happen and, and how good certain horses of certain eras were that we don't have maybe the context. You know, I told you this before in a private group text with you and Barry, but the way you explained that to me, bro, was better than I could have said it myself. And when you said it, I, it dawned on me, you know, that, that is true. And that's like when I write, I try to do it do it that way too and i kind of kind of remember leon you know leon was a good 30 years older than me easily if not more but what the thing i liked about leon was he was that he was that way too and he it's it's a it's a matter of personality too because you know he was friends with me and I was a lot younger than he was, you know what I'm saying? And like, even with me right now, I'm friends with people of all age groups, <laughs> uh, you know, from my, you know, my son's age group guys in their twenties, you know, to, to, to guys that are 90. Right. And so I don't, I, I'm, I'm just interested in everybody's, um, existence and it kind of translates to why I can you know I might be a certain age but you know I still you know carry carry on very fluidly appreciating the present and the past at the same time and I, I when you said that I was kind of thinking about it and uh, actually I was talking to Cynthia about it and she said man Chuck is really on the mark about that, but that's how you are in, in, in life too. And I think all of us are that way too, you know? Um, so Sid, thanks, it, thanks for clarifying that. Explain <laughs> my, my, my unhealthy obsession with Tom Thibodeau and the New York Knicks and the <laughs> <Miami> Dolphins. <laughs> no, I, it's, it's true though. You, you, uh, you know, you, you have a great sense of history. I think that's something that, that really this business misses badly because we, we seem like we make the same mistakes a lot. <laughs> and uh, I, I got in a big Twitter or a Facebook beef with a guy who's a nice guy. And, and he's a guy that actually his heart's in the right place. But his idea about, you know, quote unquote, marketing races is like every failed idea from the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And I'm like, dude. Beer gardens aren't going to win, like win us the day. <laughs> you know, you're, you're you're attracting a certain level of, of patron that maybe will help the racetrack's bottom line on that particular day, mm -hmm. but they're not going to go get uh, hammered on, on cheap beers and then say, "Oh my God, I'm addicted. I'm coming every weekend." You know, even if they don't have the free beer the next weekend, and that unfortunately our, our racing executives 
a lot of times get caught up in, in that same thing and they do things that, that haven't worked or they do things that aren't healthy for the business because it's, you know, short-term thinking. But uh, I, I, do love bullshit. I do love that we can ask you things about, you know, uh, things in the, in the, you know, not, not the, the distant, distant past, even though you come up with answers for those too. Um, mm-hmm. And, and also make sure you shout out to Cynthia Teller. I am considering, uh, quitting racing and becoming a railroad magnet because uh, <laughs> I know she has some some family experience in there yeah and, yeah that's and, right and rich Richard Duchess while well, he did really good in the railroads and <laughs> you know uh, that was I always liked to collect the railroads when we played Monopoly so yeah. I'm figuring that railroads might still be the way to go <laughs> I gotta I gotta tell you guys she's got such a great sense of people and one of the times we were all together at Tampa, I remember, you know, she'd already met Barry and uh, she said, man, I really like Chuck. He's got, he's such a character. <laughs> he's such a character. <laughs> well, that's that putting it mildly. That, yeah. that, might, that might be a detraction for her. I mean, you know, we can't all be perfect. And obviously her. Um... She appreciates that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> Well, she's well, called vibe me a character. He gives too, us the so. vibe check, you know. She <laughs> lets know. She's like, "Yeah, I don't like them." All right. Hey, listen, yeah. she's an she's an attorney, and I have to stay friends with her because I may never, you know, I may need her. Yeah, that's uh, right. I don't know if she does criminal, but uh, that's yeah. what her thing is. She's a criminal right. defense attorney. All right, if I happen to, you know, smack somebody, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm going to the bullpen, Sid. Yeah, on the line. <laughs> absolutely. You got you got a you got a free ticket to. Uh, access to her right there. Uh, but, there uh, but I'll tell you, bro, getting back to what you were talking about with this game and stuff, we need... You know what I'd like to see? <clears throat> I'd like to see guys like you and Barry on TV talking about betting and horses. That One of the, one of the shows you guys did recently where you guys were talking about the betting and you know, explaining how, you know, just talking about it and how one guy might do something another way. And it, it really resonated with me. And Barry especially needs to be on TV, man. <laughs> he does. You're you're 100% right. I don't know yeah. about me being on TV. I got a face for radio. But <laughs> Barry is, is very well-spoken and, and he's got a lot of knowledge about handicapping that isn't just the run of the mill nonsense that you hear exactly and, you know, and one I think of the first day... times i went to tampa bay we cynthia and i got there we were late we heard barry on the on the phone giving out this nine to one shot and i said we got to hit this horse quick we got the bet in we just got in there it wins boom it made our day <laughs> you know and sometimes people think barry just picks long shots but that's not true i mean there are yeah. times where he'll be like, ah, "This was, you know, you just can't beat this horse," and then just have to accept him and single him, and and you know, didn't spread any other legs of the pick or whatever. Um, and that's just something you, you just don't hear very often. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I, but I like the fact that the two of you guys are this no chalk zone. No, <laughs> we can all go to the track, bro, and and and, and look at the tote board and bet eight to five or even money or two to one. You know what I like? I like it when a guy says, you know, I'm going to go with this 15-1 shot here. Yeah, we all know it may not win, 
but this guy has studied it. In this case, Barry. You know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I look for. Well, I it, want to it's go and have those... somebody tell me. Uh, oh yeah, here's my top three, and you know nothing's above uh, three to one. Well, you know my my stance on this game, and 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 this has developed over a, a period of time, where you know I I figured out, you know halfway through my development as a as a better, that you have to be different than everybody else in order to win. You know you can't just sit and play favorites all day long and expect to win. You have to be different. And when people zig, you got to zag. And there's ways of doing that. And, and it's not really talked about a lot because when you see a lot of the podcasts that go on, you know, there's like a million podcasts and everybody's giving out picks and stuff like that. Most of the time you can kind of match up the stuff. It's, it's, they're not really different. Right. And that's what I, I, try to do is bring a, a different element whether it's just from my experience or you know trying to to kind of cross over into a different realm that this sport hasn't been um you know it's it's just something that i, I like to do and i think it brings a, a new perspective on something that's been around for a long time and the thing is you're successful too and you do it and it makes it a lot more interesting and that's just your skills. Okay, it's better, but it's also really interesting to see a different face on there. You yeah. know, a guy rocking a bandana. You know what I'm saying? I think I think that's a, a lot of it, at least for me, because you know, I feel comfortable when I dress like that, or uh, I'm I'm a certain way. Yeah. Um, and it and it gets me into my element, and then I can perform, so to speak. Uh, but this industry isn't used to that. They're not ready for that yet, I don't think. And it might be a, a, a longer ways out. But, you know, you never know where it can go or when it will happen. But it, it's just like the whole industry itself isn't ready for that yet. Yeah. But, you know, if there were the, guy, the kind of people that Chuck was just talking about that run this business, that's what they need. You need, you need something to differentiate your product your competitor you know what i'm saying exactly you, you need something interesting you know and you need basically you need smart people you need smart people because yeah. stupid people aren't gonna last <laughs> no. stupid people we've That's already true. lost a lot of stupid people they sit at slot machines and just push a button yeah because they're not they just want the action and you know a slot machine is going to pay you off enough to keep your interest that's right. And and they're in racing. Well, hell, there's no guarantee you're gonna cash any tickets. So and and you have time between races, even if you're betting you know a lot of different races and it's just uh you know, your best clients are basically nerds. So yeah. who should you go after? You should go after nerds. But what does racing do? They don't. They go after they go after twenty two year olds who don't have the time, who don't have the funds and uh, I, mean, I, I don't even want to talk about it. It's so stupid. But, you know, I, I mean, I wrote about this two weeks ago about how at the very least, even if you want to be, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to say this, but uh, even if you, you, you don't see the positive out, outcome of, of being a, a more diverse industry and, and getting into more uh, 
diverse um, areas where you're not getting them. It, it, it just is, it, you know, you, you can't expect people from different backgrounds to, to get into racing when all you show is the same faces over and over and over again. Yeah, and it's exactly. one of those things. And I've told the story. I'm sure people are sick of hearing about it was the first Caribbean classic they had at Gulfstream Park. And I kind of thought it was kind of like a joke event. And I mean, I didn't know the horses. We didn't know the, you know, who the hell knows who's running in Dominican Republic, you know, yeah, like you don't right. know the horses, you don't know the trainer, you don't know anything about these horses. And I, I showed up there and, and it was like, there was 25,000 people. It was like insane. Yeah. And everybody was 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 having fun and it was like it was like great and it's like this these people are, are, are out there and that is just an example of a of a uh, demographic that the racing is ignored because racing just goes after the same people and now there's more people uh more, more competition in that in that demographic so instead of spreading out and trying to be more diverse and, and, and get into new markets and get in uh, people the, of, of color of, of different, maybe Spanish speaking people. We are very, very narrow. They, 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 you know, throw a, uh, you know, it, it just is, it's. Yeah. It's, I totally agree with you. And it's the rehash. Yeah. You know, the yes. rehash is what gives you Tibbs as the Knicks coach. Oh, that's something just to tie it in you know what i mean you know if you didn't rehash coaches tibbs would never be the coach of the the new york Knicks. yeah but that's i just what think that they they, they have this cookie cutter model of right. how they think racing should be um covered and it's wrong and it's terrible and it's stupid and and they're idiots and we're losing and and this we're not winning we're losing that's right i mean we've underachieved as a business for, for years and years and years, sports wagering has shown, and 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 you cannot compare an apples to orange uh, apples to apples sports wagering versus horse racing. Of course, it's 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 a different animal. However, it has shown that there was a frightening amount of disposable income out there for gambling of some sort, mm-hmm. and horse racing is much closer to sports betting than casino wagering is um certainly than than slots are uh and it shows that how racing failed to capture literally any of that and i'm not saying uh, barry and i talked about this a couple months ago when some of the sports wagering numbers in new york came back and they're like staggering Mm -hmm. and you know basically we're saying if we had gotten two percent of that Two percent. Not, not. We're not asking for fifty percent or twenty percent or ten percent. We're asking for one percent. You're talking about one percent. You're talking about um, handle being up thirty percent. You know that. That's how much we missed the, that that market. And now that's our direct competitor. And everyone in racing wants to get in bed with them. And it just seems like, yeah. you know, instead of instead of trying to. I mean, inside the pylons is a maniac, but his theme is is not wrong. No, it's not wrong at all. No, because math is 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 a is an absolute. You know, you you really can't go against the math. Exactly. Um, And and that's what I think a lot of 
you know, this industry is missing. It's like, I, I always say this to Chuck and, and I'm like, how do they run their business? This is a business. It it just doesn't make any sense. A lot of the decisions that are being made in order to maintain the business don't make sense for the business. That's, that's so true. You know, my son's 25 and he is obviously so, you know, technologically literate (laughs) and loves, you know, sports betting. Uh, He's a great, he's a great blackjack player and he would like to get more into horse racing, but he doesn't see guys like Barry or inside the pylons explaining stuff which is that mathematical stuff that would appeal to him. Instead, when we, if we flip on the TV, you know, it's some young woman usually explaining something and picking a seven to five shot. <laughs> you know true. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, bro, that doesn't fly with his demographic. And there's a lot of those guys around. I was going to say, yeah, there's a lot of that. You, you know, I, I see it, you know, on Instagram. You see it on social media a lot, even even on horse racing Twitter. You can see the difference between the old regime and the new regime. And the new the newer players have different interests. It's not the same thing that it was in, in 1975. Yeah. And, and it seems, you know, and I've said this time and time again, especially on, on the show, that they're working on a 1950s model in 2023, and it's not, it's there's no correlation there. It's, it's not, it's not going to add up to dollars. Well, that's that's why this ties into what I'm saying. If a guy like my son sees a guy like Barry on TV talking, that's going to immediately attract him, and and make him listen. All right, um, you need that entree of likability. And and uh, the ability to relate to that person, and they're missing out on guys like Barry not being out there, and you too, Chuck, because they're not getting that type of visual before they even start to listen. You know what I'm saying? I, I think you know. I, I watched a, a four-part documentary on Inside the NBA. Yeah, which has been by far the most successful sports studio show ever. Um, it's just you know it's a tremendous show. It, the same people have been on it for years and years and years because it works. Uh, and, and one of the things, the themes that they 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 the producer had was that he said, "I wanted to do something different than everyone else was doing." He goes, "All they were doing when we started the show was." You were, you were reading off the scores and showing the highlights and then kicking mm-hmm. into the next game. And I, I wanted to have a, a discussion. I wanted to hear two people or three people that, that had knowledge of the game explain what's actually going on and, and, and you know, their takes on, you know, bring us inside. We can all see the score. We can all see when a guy makes a basket. We can all see uh, you know what goes on, but explain why that happened and how this happened and and what a coach is thinking, what a player is thinking. And I remember one of the things that he he said to um, uh, Kenny Smith, who was the the first athlete to go on, because originally it was just one guy, Ernie Johnson. And and he said to Kenny Smith, he goes, "I if you look at the camera, you're fired. Do not look <laughs> at the camera. You're yeah. not going to look in the camera and read off scores. You're going to." 
talk about, you know, you're going to use your experience as a player, as a top player, as a player that played on, on great teams that, that played on, you know, for legendary coaches, we want, you know, give us your experiences and relate it to the game at hand. And it was like a brilliant, um, it, it changed sports television because the guy took a chance. And then obviously they added Barkley and Barkley became like a phenomenon because of his personality. Um, and the fact that the matter was that uh, he worked because he could say anything and it didn't matter if he offended people. It didn't matter uh, pretty much anything uh, he said, but he, he was being honest and true and people loved that because they knew he was being, uh, he wasn't just selling them a bill of goods and racing. They just sell us a bill of goods all the time. And they, you know, we're not supposed to talk bad about people. We're not supposed to mention when people's horses don't look as good as, you know, they did. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. we're not supposed to talk about a bad ride or, you know, a, a strange training job or this or that. And yet that is what the conversation is among your customers. That's that's almost exclusively <laughs> what it is. And, and they don't give it to us. Yeah, and that's like, the what's relatable. Yes. And so, you know what? Your show does that in its small way. That's what it's doing. Yeah, well, because that, that, no, I think people would like to hear and, and talk in accordance with what they would do at the racetrack. Yeah. You don't see that anywhere. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, we've talked about this idea of having like a, a, a player show sort of thing where, you know, we talk about the betting and, and, and the intricacies of betting, but we're also horse players, you know, Yeah. talk about the, the stuff that nobody else wants to talk about on, on television or in any other form in this sport. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and it, it, it would be engaging. I, I know people would want to see it. Um, I mean, look at things that go on on Twitter, like with the Twitter spaces uh, that one group um, with Nico and, and Belter Bill, they they talk freely. <laughs> they talk trash. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that that, and that, that, no that far, to... but and, and you being know, able to is... speak freely on subjects that this sport considers taboo because everybody's intermingled with everybody and, you know, that sort of thing, it's engaging. And they yeah. have 100 people listening at 1 o'clock in the morning. Exactly. And and we have other racing shows that are sponsored by the Breeders' Cup that have four people watching. Yeah, that's embarrassing, man. Because nobody cares about what they're they they want to just throw out stuff that that you know appeals to them, but they're not the customer. And and that's the thing that that bothers me. And you know, there, there's some other stuff that it just the you know the lack of media. I mean, we have a couple of media outlets. Or one of them is just they're just a complete shill. Yeah, and and it's like we we lost a lot. Racing lost a lot with the demise of newspapers. It really did. Really did. Because, uh, I mean, growing up, Andy Byer and Steve Christ and, uh, and the New York guys, uh, Rick Lang and uh, Peason, who was a little bit nuts, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they would write about what they saw. And, and not always the good things. Yeah, Paul Moran. Paul Moran. Yeah, Paul was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and 
and you know they, they kind of um, they 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 were straight shooters because they worked for the newspaper. They didn't work. For I mean, the- how many times have you seen, or I mean, I've seen, you know, those those editorials that Andy Byer used to do in the Washington Post. Yeah, yeah, right. He, he exactly. Would, exactly, and and uh, I think that racing is is it really really is um, it struggles because it doesn't have that voice. I mean, we say what we say here and we don't hold any punches and we don't also have, you know, really any sponsors and we also uh, aren't backed by a, a big media company that, that uh, you know, that, that, that spreads our message either. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, you guys have the we're, most, in, we're in the seventy first minute the most here. Intelligent so. show of all the podcasts out there. You're the most intelligent show. You got two smart guys. You know your subject matter. You every week you go through what what's happened during the week, right? And um, even like you know, originally when I saw this, it was just you know, you guys were my friends, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll I'll listen to this. I, I then got really interested in listening to it, <laughs> you know, to the you point know, where I don't really have two hours, bro, every week to, to listen to it. But now I play it while I'm working. You know, there's something that's been bugging me about um, this week about a story that's a tragic story, unfortunately. Um, and this kind of goes back to to that media and it's about the jockey that that uh, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And the blood horse led with a story that said that he he's dead because of the pressures of being a jockey. And that's not true. That's not true. And, and, and people may not like this. And people may be upset. I, I don't really care. But the truth of the matter is, depression is a killer. And the reason he's no longer with us is because his depression got the worst of him. Not because he was a jockey. Yep. Not because uh, it, it's difficult. And it is difficult to be a jockey. It is hard. I mean, Barry and I went through this, what, last week or the week before? Yep. About, about people criticizing rides that are perfect. I got to ride the horse perfect. And, and half the internet complains because uh, the horse didn't win, even though the jockey literally did everything in his power to win. But the blood horse led with a jockey, a person is dead because he was a jockey. And that's just absolutely not true because people commit suicide every day, every walks of life because of depression, not because of their position. Their position is the position that they held when the depression finally got to them and it made it too unbearable. And I think that that to me bothered me because um, because being a jockey is very very difficult. Mm-hmm. A you have to have, you have to keep your weight up. You, you're doing a dangerous job. Um, it's a thankless job. You get fired all the time. And and I, I've talked to many successful jockeys, very successful, high the high the highest famous, and, and and one of the most difficult tasks for them is being replaced. And if you think about that. In what other profession, when you're at the top of the, the, the heap, do you get replaced literally all the time? <laughs> you know, like trainers, we get fired a lot, right? But 
it doesn't happen on a like five times a week. Yeah. And it doesn't happen in, in some of the big races, especially when we didn't do anything wrong. Tom Brady doesn't get benched every time he throws two interceptions. <laughs> and it's just, it's understandable. But that was kind of, to me, uh, you know, I, I just, I can't. I mean, Robin Williams wasn't a jockey. Robin Williams was a, an actor. Robin Williams had a life that we would all probably, you know, kill to have. But he he killed himself because of depression. Yeah. Same with Anthony Bourdain. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's not because he was a jockey. Yeah. He just happened to be a jockey, and the pressures unique to him were uh, jockey related because this is what he did as a profession. Yeah. But he didn't. He, he wasn't driven to it by um, by everything. The depression is what killed him. You, you don't see a, a, an article about someone who dies from lung cancer. Uh, you know, Joe Blow is dead because he smoked too many cigarettes. That's not that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. He died because he had cancer. This person had depression, and it's sad. It's freaking unbelievably sad. Being a yeah. jockey is is a difficult. I was married to a jockey. Believe me, it's 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 a hard business, but racing is a hard business, and it, you know depression is is a is a real thing. It really uh, is, and it's it's good you brought this up in this conversation too, because uh, nobody else has talked about it except you know you know the first time I saw it after the death was who's that guy on Twitter? Um, he's like a trainer for uh, Larry Best. Don, oh, Don, Don, Don Chatlos. Chatlos. Don Chatlos? Yeah. 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 He had a real nice tweet about it where he mentioned mental health and depression. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, he was like the first guy I saw even mention this when I saw the story. You know? People don't understand addiction. They don't understand depression. They don't understand it. It's like, um, you know, your team loses, you feel bad. That's not depression, you know. That's, that's right. not really depression. That that's just something that happens. We all have have things that 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 lead us down a path. Uh, we all have our moods. We all have this. But people with severe depression, that they, they they don't. It's just like people talk about addiction. Well, why didn't they stop drinking? Well, well yeah. you know, look at the consequences. That's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 cannot see the consequences because they go down a different path than we do. Their brains aren't wired like ours. And it's something that, um, you know, racing has a lot of. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I mean, I know the veterinarian community is a very difficult per- place that there's a an unbelievably high percentage of, of veterinarians that wind up committing suicide. You would think that people that work with animals, that, that uh, obviously are, are, are intelligent people. They've had to go through seven, eight years of intense school. Um, veterinarians pretty much, you know, do, do well financially. It's, it's not like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're people that uh, live on the edge for the most part. You'd think that it's a, it's a, uh, a respected profession. They're doctors for God's sake. Uh, I know three different veterinarian people who are associated 
with veterinarians that, that have killed themselves within the last four or five years. And these are three completely, they have zero to do with each other. Nothing. Wow. One, one is a person, a close friend of mine who had a, you know, a vet who, who um, that did it. And then two others were, um, like I said, they, they were different parts of the country, but that's a lot. That's a lot. And, and it's, you know, the pressure of, you know, yeah, you're working with animals, but you're only working with injured and sick animals. No one brings their, their healthy animal to the, to the vet. Say, hey, look at my horse or look at my dog or look at my cat, you know? Yeah. And they let people down and, and it's, 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 a, it's a hard profession. But depression is what gets them. Yeah. And I think that that's something that, that really is, is difficult. And, and that, uh, you know, I saw people say, oh, we shouldn't criticize jockeys. Well, of course we should criticize jockeys. We should, everyone is, is subject to criticism when people's money is, is on the line. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's part of the deal. You, you, you know this going in. You know, I mean, like we said, it's, there's a lot of unwarranted criticism that happens because people don't know what the hell they're watching, um, including trainers. Believe me, I know a lot of trainers that that, uh, you know, play the jockey blame game all the time. And, and I think a lot of them kind of deep down know it's not true, but they've, they've convinced themselves it's the jockey's fault all the time. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it's real and it, it's something that. Uh, you know, I just didn't like the way that portrayed, uh, like pointed fingers almost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was something that, that, uh, well, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point because I saw a lot of those tweets, um, you know, piggybacking off what that article kind of prefaced, which to me, like, like you, it, it kind of was like, well, that doesn't seem like how this all came down. I mean, anybody that commits suicide, you know, there's an issue there that's beyond whatever it is that they do as a profession. Exactly. It's not, you know, yeah. People don't understand. I think, you know, there's very tied into addiction and then a lot of people wind up addicted to whatever it is they're addicted. I mean, there's people that are addicted to exercise. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's people that uh, are addicted to a lot of different things. And a lot of them, it's it's just they're trying to escape from their own brain. Um, And racing is a very difficult spot. It's a tough spot because uh, if you're a trainer or if you're a jockey, your your numbers, your stats are pointed, you know, posted next to your name all the time. And we don't have a season. Our season is pretty much year round. Mm -hmm. Um, Professional athletes, they 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 have um seasons where where they can decompress and they can get away and their name's not in the headlines and and yeah the, it's it's not nearly as easy as everybody makes it out to be and yes they make um in some cases tremendous amounts of money but um it's also probably not the, the easiest thing to do to understand um you know people nationwide think you suck yeah um, that's that's you know, guy misses a field goal, and you know the whole world is is on your case. But um, but no, it, it and it's hard, and I think people sometimes downplay the fact that uh, 
that it's not easy for people feeling that to get help. It's difficult. That's the hardest thing for them to do. The absolute hardest thing for them to do is to get help. If you consider that a person is willing to kill themselves rather than ask for help, that's how difficult it is. So, you know, I, I just feel that there's so many people that, that don't show uh, that actual sympathy and they don't even want sympathy. They just want someone to understand. And, and that's, it's hard to understand. I, I had to deal with uh, addiction for someone that was close to me and, and it was, they don't give you a handbook to, on how to deal with it. And eventually you do figure out that, uh, you know, you have to sometimes draw the line in the sand and, and let them figure out their own stuff. But, um, you know, in the end, people's minds are, are their, their worst enemy. And then there's really, in some cases, nothing you can do about it. Yeah. yeah well said. I didn't mean to get too somber. Anyways, um, <laughs> Sid. Yeah. Who's the, who's the best horse you ever saw? Um, well, you know, you can go with a recency bias or you can, so many ways to answer that question, Chuck, you know, you, or you can, you know, you can default to a horse that first captivated you when you first got into the sport. Uh, I have a really hard time. And perhaps this is why, you know, I'm pretty good at not being that guy that <laughs> in the past or, you know, uh, whatever, but I'm pretty flexible at, you know, appreciating horses given the time this, that they raced in their environment and um you know so i mean there's no question this year the, the you know the best horse we saw was flight line um he was i got a chance to see him at the breeders cup live finally after i'd seen you know all, all the races and man he really is um you know he he reminds me of some great horses I've seen in the past. And since I started watching races, I was one, I can say I, I saw Secretariat's Belmont. That gave me goosebumps. You know, then I then I lived through the four go era right after Secretariat. Secretary was 73, 74, 75, 76. Uh, I'd say he's my favorite horse of all time. Uh, but I then got a chance to see, you know, Seattle slew affirmed in spectacular bit. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Later on, you know, a horse that you appreciate, he may not be the greatest horse of all time, but John Henry, you know, oh, yeah. just uh, unbelievable. Um, and then, you know, there's so many other great horses you know, we've gone through from, from there. So it's really hard for me to give any one pick. Of course, you know, as a student of the game, I've also gone back before my time. But, of course, Dr. Fager is just a standout, along with his contemporaries, uh, Damascus and Buckpasser, you know. So, um, and then among Phillies, Dr. Fager's half-sister, Tawi. Um, I was there during, you know, the Ruffian era. Um and then through the years, uh, you know, we've had um, so many great horses. The one um, 
the one thing, and Chuck, you and I have talked about this, where you've got to give some leeway now to current horses is that in the past they ran in handicap races and and they don't now. So you can't penalize a horse right now for not carrying weight. They're never going to do it, you know? Um, so, you know, those are parts of the game where you got to modify with the times too. Let me ask you this question. Yeah. <laughs> um, who do you think uh, taking out Northern Dancer? Who, who do you think has been the most afflu- influential stallion of the last forty years? Last forty years. So let's see. That goes back to uh, make it. Make it the make it the fifties. From the fifties. Make it. Yeah. Make it fifty. That that's really when you started to. Yeah. Follow, so yeah. So so the last. Well, it, you know, it's got to be Mister Prospector in this country, Danzig internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, those two horses at Claiborne uh, really are, you know, modern breed shapers. Of course, uh, Danzig is the son of Northern Dancer. But Mr. Prospector um, has, you know, I mean, his influence is still so powerful right now. Uh, you know, Northern Dancer, basically, uh, his influence only kind of really exists in this country right now through Stormcat. Um, Danzig, his influence really kind of diffused in this country, and he's more an international phenomenon, Europe and Australasia. He's got, of course, Warfront here, but that was a turf uh, thing. Now, to me, it's a no-brainer uh it's definitely Mr. Prospector. You know, you know what's interesting about the the stallions you just brought up is that, and, and that th- this is something that I think that um, gets lost for the general population when they're talking about breeding and stallions and things. And that you just brought up three, you know, hugely important stallions: Mr. Prospector, who was a sprinter. Yeah. Who no one, you know, I remember when I, in the eighties, hearing a lot of questions is is mr prospector yeah he's he's got a, a lot of brilliance and he's got a lot of fast horses but is he ever going to get mile and a quarter horses right and right. there was a lot of people that didn't think he was exactly. um and then you, you look at danzig and he was a sprinter too right and and right you look at danzig who had a three race career mm-hmm. um my, my guy joe brocklebank wrote him first right out. right um uh and then you 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 go to um uh, you, you talked about you talked about well Stormcat, but Warfront, yeah, and that Warfront has been a, a really strong influence uh, on grass, and and he yeah. never raced the single race on yeah. grass. Yeah, it was basically a dirt sprinter. <laughs> he, he, don't, yeah. he he was he when he ran in the Breeders' Cup at Churchill, he he was in the jerk and shift in my barn at Churchill. Wow. Um, Fernando Abreu was was with him, uh, and I remember looking at him thinking. Man, you don't look like much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great call, Chuck. Yeah. Yeah, he's standing for a quarter million uh, yeah. five years later. But um and, and even Stormcat. I mean, Stormcat was a horse who was really good as a two year old. Exactly. And a, a, a Pennsylvania bred. Right. Trained by Jonathan Shepard, of course, trained by a guy who's really known more for, for his steeplechase uh, uh career, but uh 
and then Stormcat got hurt and he missed the I think he missed a year and then came back and ran once or twice. Yeah, but, right. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the current stallion, uh, top stallion of Into Mischief, who kind of had a brief career too. You look yeah. at Tappet, who, who didn't really do much, and you know people seem to think that. Um, I, I guess where I was going with this is well, Into Mischief and Tappet both I think only had six starts. Yep. Each. I think what, what I was really trying to this roundabout way of getting there yeah. is that the race record isn't um, like just give us give give me your thoughts using those horses obviously as, as the catalyst. What what people don't understand about race records in potential stallions? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny we. we we just mentioned those horses there. None of those horses went to stud for a big stud fee. Mr. Prospector went to stud in Florida. Danzig was probably the most expensive out of them. Uh, that's because Woody told Seth, you know, this was the greatest horse he ever trained. Um, Stormcat, you know, you know, he had, uh, you know, Overbrook was, you know, really soliciting mares for him when he went to stud into mischief same thing at, at, at spendthrift you know um you know there was a point where you could get to him for seventy five hundred dollars tap it started at 15 uh, you know same with warfront at 12 five all these horses we just mentioned you know were fairly inexpensive in, in the in the big picture weren't they all of them had all of them had some kind of speed to them i think and all of them had this, you know, early three-year-old form too. I think when you look at a stallion, you've got to look at two and early three-year-old form. And it's actually one of the reasons why, if you look carefully at the Florida Derby, it's actually getting more better stallions than the race that everybody thinks is a big stallion-making race, which is the Met Mile. And part of that is because, you know, these are two-year-olds getting ready for the classics early in their three-year-old year. So I think you have to have a little brilliance to you and some early development. Into Mischief was a grade one winner at two. Um, you know, um, and and the others, you know, they had speed. So uh, Stormcat was a grade one winner at two. So I think... Um, if you're really kind of wildcatting for a stallion, it's always good to look at some of these horses that are at 20 or less or 15 and less because they may end up being your big horse. Yeah, it's funny because people kind of down look down their nose at those horses. And they, <laughs> and they, they want, want horses like Skip Away who made a ton of starts. Yeah. But, uh, you know, did nothing as a stallion. No, uh, that's it's so true. Some of the, the best horses just never, you know, they, they, they could never replicate themselves, but they, they couldn't. I mean, Skipaway wasn't, he wasn't all that well-bred. I think, right. I, I mean, I know it's a complicated, uh, Richard Galpin told me one time, I asked him about a stallion when I first started training. And he said, uh, he goes, you want a sure-proof way to, to be right 90% of the time? I said, sure. <laughs> he goes, just hate every stallion, every new stallion. 
He goes, you'll be, you'll be right nine out of ten. He goes because most of them don't, don't, you know, a few years from now, no one heard of him already. Yeah, that's true. It, it is true. It, yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. I think when you see the report of mares bred to stallions, yeah, um, how some of these stallions will be, uh, you know, so hot as young, and and it's never been like this before, right? I mean, it's never been where you have this massive demand for for first year and second year stuff. Yeah, this is a but... this is a whole new paradigm from you know recent times because the breeding game is so commercial everyone's breeding to sell and so they you know it, it boils down to this they want to bring a yearling to market where that that sire has not been a failure so if you yeah. bring a first crop yearling to market you're safe if you bring a second crop yearling to market, think about this. That first crop of that stallion is now two, and the yearling sales say in September, he might have flopped by then, right? But maybe not. But think about this. If you bring a third crop yearling to market, that means if you bred in a horse's third year at stud, if the two-year-olds and the three-year-olds have bombed by the time you bring your yearling to the market, you're dead. And since yeah, it's right. a selling game, that's why people don't want to take chances. You know, it's an investment hedge. So they want to go to that first year to be safe. It was interesting that a couple of weeks ago we were lamenting uh, Cyberknife yeah. going to stud because the way we looked at it was the really the only, to me, I'm sure the rich strike people will come after me as usual but to me the only horse that's really a top level horse returning um to the older horse division this year is taiba yeah um i don't see many you know everyone else seems like a b-team type of horse yeah and cyber knife was a good horse and you know him and taiba had a they didn't have a rivalry because i think they only ran against each other twice twice uh, yeah uh, no, 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 no. They ran the, the three, times. Three, the three times. Three times. Three times. The one time they all just got blown away by flight line. So, oh, no, no, no. Cyberknife didn't run in the. Didn't, yeah. He ran yeah. in the Breeders' Cup he, mile. He ran in the mile. Anyways, <laughs> you know, we were making the point, man, you know, he, he's got a really good chance because uh, Ty was going overseas. So he was going to run in, in the spring. And then he probably won't run again until the summertime. Yeah. So, I mean, Cyberknife might have had the a table. real opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And then you told us, you know, because he, he was listed at... Uh, he was listed at 30, bro. 30. And and Seasons are selling at 55, 60. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you multiply that out yeah. by how many Seasons available? 150? Yeah. You know. Yeah. He, a lot of money. Yeah, it's he, a lot of doubt. He, he'd have to win every single race he ran against and just to kind of break even, so... Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, like, you know, people um, just miss and, and how we missed it um, because we weren't aware of, of what he was, uh, you know, how popular he, he obviously is. Yeah. But, you know, it's the timing. He's a first, he'd be a first year stallion at stud and he's by gun runner. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a lot of interest in him. Right. And the thing is in his second and third years, you know, they're going to, they're going to, yeah. They're gonna, it's going to be so hard for them to give away seasons at $20,000. And so, you know, what these guys want to do is they want to front load their opportunity. 
They want to get everything in that first season to try to make all their money back. Well, you know what's happening in the standard bread business is the horses are going to stud and they're coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <but laughs> they're bringing, they could do a Bertrando and bring them back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if Jimmy Freight, he went to stud and uh, it's 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 strange because now he's got foals out there racing and he's still racing. And and didn't Bulldog uh, breed horses and and then continue to race this year? Yeah, he bred a small a small group, but of course they they do AI so. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know exactly how many. It wasn't a huge amount, but uh, he does. Yeah. He will have uh, foals next year. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a crazy game. But, uh, hey, you know, I was, uh, I, I don't know if it was one of you guys and me, or we, we saw it on Twitter and we were talking about it, but somebody was talking about uh, country, country, oh, house. country house versus, uh, Nashville, country house at seventy five hundred versus Nashville at fifty thousand. The big thing is Nashville's a first year first. sire with mm-hmm. a lot of speed, and fifteen thousand. You know, it's a no brainer for a commercial breeder. Uh, country house, he's like in a second or third year at stud, and I just you know think about that scenario I told you about a second or third year at stud horse. If you're a commercial breeder, right? Uh, you know, nobody's going to want to touch him versus Nashville. No, he also had right now, he, anyway. he had no speed country. Huh? No, no speed. <clears throat> and by the way, think... Nashville kind of fits this profile of these young, sa- successful sires we were just talking about in a way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Huge yeah. career. Yeah. Ran fast and precocious. Very right. Yeah. Yeah. My friend bought a bought a share in him. Really? Yeah. I think that's a good investment. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, th- I thought so. I mean, yeah. I said, you know what? It's he, he like you said he had speed. He's 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 got a pretty good pedigree and I mean, it's uh if you hit, it's a big it's a big score. So, yeah. I think the best value right now at stud is B Jersey. B so Jersey, five, yeah. 5000, yeah. I mean, he's had 20 starters and two stakes winners in a stakes place fully so far. His stats put him right up there, uh, second to good magic. On top of which, his best colt, Cheryl's B, uh, is the favorite for the UAE 2000 Guineas next month. And he's just getting some stone cold runners he had. Oh, the horse that you had touted in the beginning, Infinite Diamond, oh, yeah. one of right. the stakes. Yeah, she, yeah, she won a gold. I think and, a B jersey just hit the board at Turfway in the state. Yeah, that's right, Jersey Pearl. Yeah, and then there's this Philly Topsy that won a two hundred twenty-five thousand dollar two-year-old for Steve Asmussen won at the fairgrounds. Uh, he's got nine winners, and I know for a fact he's got some great horses coming up because Mister Fipke's bred to him some good mares to him, you know. Mm-hmm. In fact, Mister Fipke's the breeder of Infinite Diamond. As well as uh, Topsy and the one in Dubai, Cheryl's B. So, you know, if somebody had $5,000, I mean, that's a horse that you can actually gamble on because the money you're putting up is so little. And there's a lot of upside gamble. Say you breed to him and then he has a big year and his stud fee goes up. And there's that momentum. 
So there's always it's Barry. It's like it's like constructing a ticket and betting. Yes. When you, when you look at these, uh, when when you're looking at breeding, what you sometimes you know what you take a chance on a third year horse. You know why? Because you've got an opinion that stallion's going to hit, and you take advantage of the lower stud fee in the third year. You breed, take your your gamble, and boom, he hits, and yep. suddenly you're sitting on something big. So there's all sorts of different ways that people can play the breeding game very much, bro, like the gambling game. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I really like that infinite diamond horse. She's yeah. really good. Yeah, I turned on the TV one day and she just crushed the, whole, the field. You were the first guy that I remember talking about it. You mentioned yeah. yeah. She and she just looked she just like looked effortless. Like, I don't know. It's, I saw it when, you know, when she ran, it was like, man. You know, you couldn't help but, you know, yeah. Sometimes horses about that win. horse is like, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. You know, sometimes horses win by big margins because the horses behind them are just dogs, right? And you know, they're they're just you know, just way better than them. But um, but she looked like, I mean, she switched leads and, and just powered on. off. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's he's an interesting stallion. Hey, I, I wanted to ask you this, Sid, about um. The Japanese, how they've they come over here and they buy top, top, top broodmares. Yeah, um, but they've taken chances on some stallions here that um, that really didn't have a whole lot of appeal to American breeders or commercial breeders, and that's so true. And, and have done well with them. Like, what do you think is the the formula? It's real. Simple. It's exactly like you say. They buy these fantastic mares that are grade one winners, grade two, grade three, whatever. And then they'll take stallions that don't have pedigree, but were grade one winners. Um, Mind your biscuits. He's a leading freshman sire over there, for example. The year before that, it was Gray Fong. He was the leading freshman sire and this year with his first crop he had a Japanese classic winner they get the good mare you know a stallion gets made for the most part by the quality of the mares he gets this is why first year horses tend to get the best mares they're going to get in the first four years of their stud career and if you go back and look at the stats and the after a few years, you'll notice most of them never had the same success in the production of stakes winners that they did that first year. Take a look, by the way, at, at Gunrunner. Last year, he was the leading freshman sire and also the leading two-year-old sire, right? And he had six stakes winners, two grade one winners, that champion Echo Zulu. This year, if you look at his two-year-olds, He's way down the list. He didn't have a single two-year-old stakes winner in 2022. Look at that drop-off. It is a huge Mm drop-off. So there's all these... There's all these factors you want to look at. It's sort of like in the breeding game. it's, It's like what you and Barry do when you're analyzing the form, looking at uh, the third graph, looking at Ragazin, uh, trip handicapping, you know, looking at the whole thing. 
There's so many different factors in breeding like this. And if you don't want to get burned, you need to do your homework like you do when you go to the track. You know, I had read something and I, I could never find it again about Sunday Silence going to Japan in that uh, the, the person writing the article had pointed out that um, Northern Taste had been the, the dominant sire in Japan prior to Sunday Silence getting yep. there. Mm-hmm. And the Sunday Silence matched with Northern Taste mares had the, was like the greatest cross in the history of, 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 of breeding <laughs> that he had like, I don't know, some unbelievable number of, 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 you know, hugely successful horses yeah. and that he worked, you know, tremendously with, with Northern taste and, and, and sons of Northern taste, which of course Japan was full of. Yeah. And, and that was one of the reasons that he had tremendous success there and may not have had that, um, the same success had he stood in, in this country. I think that was the premise of the article that, you know, he might, you know, he was probably going to be a good stallion no matter what, but mm-hmm. uh, that he, he, he got dropped into the perfect scenario, though no one at the time knew it was the perfect scenario. Right. And I can't find it. I've looked on the internet everywhere for that. And, and I don't remember who wrote it, um, but it was like a fascinating thing. And, and I think it was actually, I, I saw it in paper. Like it was in a magazine or yeah, yeah. a book or something. And and I, I've never been able to find that. But um and, and everything and you know, a lot of the stuff uh, on the Japanese um websites is in Japanese. Yeah, that's right. So but, also uh, the other thing that ended up helping him was they have distance racing in Japan and it's on turf. Yeah. And you know, his sire Halo was a a, a fantastic turf runner. And um, the turf and the distance really helped them. On top of which, aside from the northern taste mares, the Yoshidas bought some great mares, expensive mares from Europe and the United States, types of mares that a horse he might not have gotten here. And all of that helped him. I mean, he ended up being, you know, there's some stallions that are just going to be good no matter what. All these cheaper horses we were just talking about, the storm cats, tappets, warfronts, you know, they were able to do it with bad mares, and that's a great that's a sign of a great stallion. Northern dancer, same way. Um, but for the most part, if you want to try to make a stallion, you need to have good mares. Because most of most stallions need that help. Some don't need it as much as others, but most of them need a bunch of help. And so if you can get great mares, you know, you can see it statistically, even in, in this example I gave you with Gunrunner, first year versus the second year. And that's a trend that happens to all stallions. You know, it was, it was one of my favorite stallions was Gone West. Oh, yeah. Fast. They're starting to... to, to, to fade out of pedigrees these days. I don't see his name except, anymore. Except with uh, Spitestown. Yeah, Spitestown, right. Yeah, and yeah. Even Spitestown's getting up there. Yeah, but now his sons like Nashville are carrying it over. There you go. That's, mm-hmm. that's another reason I like Nashville. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Gone West. 
Yeah, he he, he came along right during that that phase and what he was winning the Belmont every year. Except Glenn yeah. West didn't win it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the ones that uh, that didn't win. Yeah, those Woody Stallions really, you know, Woody was a great um, a great marketer, and re- he really helped in some of these ma- massive syndications. You know, yeah, Conquistador Cielo for like thirty six million. Um, devil, yeah, bag. when when 36 million was huge, you know, was yeah. huge yeah. number, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. devil's bag, man. I was that was what I, I remember. I went to the races that day, and, and the entire track knew devil's bag was gonna win. It was like <laughs> it was, it was one of those kind of nutty things, and, and I, I think he's still went off like yeah, like two to one, right? Or five. yeah, like eight to five or seven to five. These days, you go off one to nine. Yeah, that's right. Um, but he was just a brilliant, brilliant two-year-old, and um, like I said, the, the day at Hialeah when he got beat, <laughs> I, I, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was, I was, I was stunned. Anyway, you know, your he, had... and you know what's funny is I, I forgot he he actually he raced after that. he ran in the Derby trial. Yeah, he yeah, he trial. did. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he won the Derby trial, but that yeah. was it. Yeah. He was a two-year-old. Yeah. Um, I'm going to sign off so that you – is that possible? Yeah, we're, we're actually all we're, – uh, we're actually getting yeah, – We're at time. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally we go so far it just cuts us off, but um, we're well, close. It was, uh, it was awesome having you on. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. We'd love to have you on again. Yeah, definitely we'll do it again. And uh, what I really want to see is – in 2023, I want to see both your profiles raised in your respective areas of expertise. I want to see Barry get some FaceTime on TV and 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 get the the handicapping going. I want to see you, uh, Chuck, with more writing because I, I'm not bullshitting you. I think you're one of the best writers this game has and they don't even know it well i appreciate that sid and uh great compliments man appreciate that maybe i'll maybe i'll write about putting barry on tv <laughs> there, there you go there you go there's the formula right there <laughs> no yeah. thank, it was great and uh, we, we do appreciate it and uh everyone listening you're, we're gonna spare you from uh, any of our nba fantasy talk but no knicks tonight uh joe christoffek did beat me uh, I, I had to wait. I'm, I'm watching games at 11:30 last night, hoping that Michael Porter hits like seven threes in the last quarter. But uh, Joe Christofek, you got me. Anyways, uh, like I said, thanks for uh, for coming on, Barry. Of course, it's real as always, and uh, we'll be back next week. All right, bro. All Talk right, to you guys. See you guys. Pleasant Acre Farms is a full-service breeding operation located in Morriston, Florida, just outside of Ocala. If you want to get involved in the breeding business in the Sunshine State, or you're already involved, Pleasant Acre Farms is really the only place you need to know. Joe and Helen Barbazon, who are just great people, do a fantastic job taking care of your mare. Uh, They have a solid roster of 13 stallions with a really diverse group of pedigrees, your mare will find a match 
at Pleasant Acre Farms. Currently, the star of Pleasant Acre Farms stallion roster is Neolithic, who is by far a runaway winner of the Freshman Stallion of the Year here in the state of Florida. His son, Make It Big, just made it three for three, winning the $400,000 Springboard Mile at Remington Park, earning 10 points towards the Kentucky Derby in the process. Pleasant Acre Farms is your one-stop shop for breeding in the state of Florida. Check them out at www.pleasantacrestallions.com or on Twitter at P-A-S Stallions. You can also give them a call at 352-528-2885. Pleasant Acre Stallions, check them out.